We're in our, our series, new series, which we had introed last week. It's called Ready. And, and it's being ready for all that God has for us. And as I've been thinking about this past week, I mean, we had a lot of things trying to get ready for to do two services. There's a lot of logistics, a lot of pieces, a lot of things together. But it was great to be able to look at David and go, we're ready to roll. Ready to move, ready to do this, and you know I think about that uh, that that as we're entering into this season of two services, and I'm, I'm thinking about this letter of First Thessalonians, and as I was looking at this letter, I was thinking about these guys. Were they did they say that to one another? I mean, would they say, "Hey, we're ready to do this. We're ready to follow God." I mean, I wondered what they were going through. I mean, we we think when we look at the scriptures that these people are so far removed from us, we fail to realize that the people within the scriptures were people just like us. We think that they were walking around with halos on, and they spoke in thee and thou all the time. And we don't see that they laughed, that they cried, that they, they went through hardship. Not everything was perfect. I mean, especially the church in Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is in modern-day Greece. This was a brand-new church that was started by the Apostle Paul after he had attended and reasoned, as was his custom. He'd gone into the synagogues. He'd begin with, if there was a Jewish population in a city, he would begin with them, reasoning from the Scriptures, showing that Jesus is the Christ. Because remember that Christianity began as a part of Judaism, and they're seeing it as the fulfillment of the, the coming Messiah, that he would come. The purpose of the Jewish race was to help be a light to the nations and bring forth the Jewish Messiah. And, and Paul is showing them that. And he wins a great deal of converts and so establishes this fledgling church. But as is want to happen with the Apostle Paul, when he comes into a city, people turn from idolatry and other people get angry because they're losing income. You want to shake people up, challenge their job and their career. And that's what he's, he's doing. He's, they're turning from, the, from idols to the living God. And they're getting jealous of Paul's influence. And so they ended up causing a, basically a mob and a riot. We learn about it in the book of Acts, chapter 17. And they get Paul, Paul has to flee. And he doesn't know what happened to this fledgling church. We don't know how long he was there. They said he, would, he reasoned for three Sabbaths. We don't know if it was exactly three consecutive or over a period of several months. But it was in between that period of time and this fledgling church is established. So he flees and he doesn't know what happened to this church. He's not exactly sure what went on. He, he, know he, he left him to the best of his ability, but his heart's aching from news. Like, what happened to this church? Well, Timothy ends up going and coming back after Paul is in Corinth. And, and, and he's like, Paul is overjoyed at the news about this church, that it is growing. And not only, they're not ready to roll, they're rolling. And through them, we can see what it means to be ready to roll, to do what God has for us, to be the people that God wants us to be. Because Paul is just amazed He's hearing about this ministry from this small group of people. They don't have seminary degrees. They didn't go to Bible college. I mean, we probably have more, we definitely have more access to more information than they've ever had. And yet God is using them in phenomenal ways that their ministry is going beyond Thessalonica and it's going all over the world. And Paul is just sitting back going, wow, you guys are rolling. Now I look at us and I go, okay, are we rolling? Now we are a little bit, but how can we be ready to roll better? What does God have for us? And I think that's what Paul wants to show us, is how we can be ready to roll and, what he, uh, and show us what we can be and do to really show how, how great God is. But let's pause for a moment and ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you how you speak to us and show us who you are. Lord, I pray that you glorify your name in our midst and use these words to transform us for your glory. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's jump into this text. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, Paul's writing together with them. It's his want to do. He would write with the other guys that he's with and put them on it, and they sometimes would help write it. He would say, to the church of Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
Then he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, that you are the real deal. See, if we, before we can really roll with God, we have to make sure that we are genuine. We're genuine. Are you genuine or are you just going through the motions? I mean, the Thessalonians were genuine. There wasn't, they weren't going through the motions. They weren't pretending. They didn't have to say, hey, they were Christian and deny them by their lifestyle. Their full life was committed. And Paul's saying that you are loved by God and you are chosen. You are genuine. You are real followers of Jesus Christ. And we can see what does it mean to be genuine? What are the characteristics of genuine? Well, first of all, in this text, we can see it means understanding that it's based on God's sovereign choice. Before you ever chose God, God chose you. Now, we're getting into some deep, very deep theological waters, if you will. And we can't begin to understand the doctrine of election completely or its entirety. But the Scripture says that God chose some. We don't know who He chose. As far as we know, that we're to preach to the entire world. And God will draw those unto himself who are chosen, the elect of God. That's what he's saying here, that they are elected. They have been chosen for a special purpose in mind. Matter of fact, the Greek word for chosen is ekloge. and means selection out of and to a given outcome. God chooses those who will be followers of his name. Now, some people, we struggle with that. Why would God choose some and not others? And that doesn't seem to be fair. Well, let's get fair. Let's really try to lay out what fair is. Fair is God sending you to hell. That's fair. If you want what's fair, it's God sending you to hell. It's not that he chose some and not others. It's why did he choose anybody at all? He didn't have to choose anyone. It wasn't required of God. It wasn't something that God had to go down the list and said, I'll elect some from the beginning of eternity. I've got to work out the second coming thing. And I've got to have a question for people to think about for years. Did Adam have a belly button? No. That's not what he was doing. God, in eternity past, chose some for reasons beyond our ability to understand. We know that he did so out of his goodness and his love. And it's a marvel that he chose anybody. And people say, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? Well, that's what Paul says. That's what he goes through. He goes through this. He says, it can be seen through the change in your life. The change in your life. Look at our text. In verse 5, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, in the proclamation, being taught, preached, but also in power, power, power. He's saying that it came to you with power, that it changed your heart and your mind. So that's what I want to know from people. Did God, I mean, when you met God, did you go forth change? Because if you didn't, I don't think you really met God. Because you see what happens, and he's saying that you had encountered, I mean, it came upon you in power. There was a dramatic change in you. And we see this throughout the scriptures. Look at verse second, or second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. I love this verse. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are different than you were. Your past does not define you any longer. You might have been an alcoholic. You might have been caught in all kind of a sordid lifestyle. You could have been immoral. You could have been a gambler. You could have been a cheat. You could have been an adulterer, fornicator. Pick your poison. But when God comes into you, when God, you become a, a follower of Jesus, God changes you. He puts his spirit within you and transforms you so you are not who you were, but you're a new person. You have new desires. You have new affections. You have a new abilities that you never had before. 
That's the wondrous thing about the gospel, that God transforms. And when I hear people say, well, God's okay with me living in my sin. It's not a big deal. It's not that big of a deal. And I stop and I say, no, 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 you don't understand the power of God. You know, it's interesting. I, I love this interaction that Jesus has with the Sadducees when they come to him and they deny. The Sadducees were a group of religious people that denied that the resurrection ever occurred. And they present this situation to Jesus to entrap him. So they come up with a situation because they, they say that there was a woman who was married to this man, this oldest brother, and that he died and they didn't have any kids. Now, in Judaism at the time, especially according to the Old Testament, there was what was called the Leverite view of marriage, meaning that if you didn't have children, the, the bride was to marry the, the brother. And then the child that would be born from that union would be considered the brother's child, that his name would go on because the name, perpetuation of the name was a huge deal. And so they said that uh, the brother marries her. They have no kids. He dies. And then it goes on and on to all seven brothers are dead. Then she dies. And they go to heaven. So whose wife will she be? And they're thinking that they're going to entrap Jesus. And I love Jesus' response. He says, you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. I love that. Because, see, I think that's true with many people. They don't understand the power of God transforms lives. It calls people out of their sin. Not that they stay in it any longer. Because if the grace of God, the love of God comes upon you, you won't stay in your sin. Because you'll be beside yourself, hating yourself. Because you'll want what you want to be what God wants you to be. Because it says here that he chose you for a purpose. He called you out of darkness to put you into light. To display his glory upon your life. We see that within second, uh, first Thessalonians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, excuse me, verse 9 through 11, Paul writes by the Spirit, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's giving uh, part of a list here about all who, who say that they're going to practice. And he says, don't be deceived by that. People will say that you can engage in all kinds of lifestyles and you'll be saved. And he says, no, 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 don't be deceived by that. God has made it pretty clear that if you're going to do this, you won't be saved. And it's the best part right here. And such were some of you. That's what you were, not what you are. That's what you were. Because the power of God came upon you and changed you from the inside out. That's what God does. He places his spirit within you to make the Son of God grow within you. That you're not what you were any longer. You're not defined by that anymore. No matter how your people try to keep you down and they want to keep you uh, in your past and you can feel your past wooing you. That's not who you were. That person's gone, dead. Because you were crucified with Christ. But the life you live now, you live by faith in the Son of God. You're living His resurrection life. His resurrection life. He says that you were washed. You're clean. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That there's a change in your life. That's what you can see if someone's genuine. Has their life changed? Has their life changed? Not only that, that's not all. Look back at our text, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that they say, he separates that. Matter of fact, there's a list of three here. Power, Holy Spirit, and he continues on with full conviction. Now, it's interesting how he breaks that down. He's saying that the Holy Spirit comes within you. Now, why does God give his spirit within you? It's to change you, yes, but he, that's the power part. There's more that's here. So what does that mean? It's the understanding of an inner confirmation in our hearts that we are children of God. Romans 8 talks about this. Let me show this verse to you. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. See, it's a confirmation. God gives the Spirit of God to you. And that tells you that you are God's child. Something's different about me. I remember hearing that about uh, one woman in a small group. She showed up and she's like, something's happening in me and I don't know what it is and it scares me. I was talking with even another small group member, um, actually one of the pastors of our Sugar Grove campus, and he had a couple that, uh, one of our, our pastors had this couple said, we want to meet with you. They just started coming to the church short time. They've been coming to the small group. And they said, we don't know what's going on in our lives. Can you tell us? And he says, what do you mean? They said, we have desire to go to church. We've never had that in our lives. We have desire to read the word of God. What is going on? Can you tell us? We're freaked out. It's because God's spirit is working in them. That's what happens. And I've seen people awakening. You ever seen that movie, Awakenings, by the way, with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro? Robert De Niro, is in this, he's in this very catatonic state, and they found this medication and starts awakening him to the world around him. And I find that's what the, the Spirit does to us. It awakens us to the world around us in very phenomenal ways. So we see that. There's a confirmation in our hearts. But it's not only that, there's a conviction we feel. Now, the word here, if we look at our text in verse 5, he says, and with full conviction. Uh, the word actually can be used as the word assurance. And it's not actually talking about the person or the confirmation of the Spirit that comes within us. But it, the way that it's, it's played out, and most scholars believe that it was actually the conviction of the preaching itself. Where it was coming upon them boldly, and they sensed that, that the word was being preached, and it told them that this is right and true. So we feel that conviction within us. You know, it's interesting, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century British preacher who pastored a several thousand member church by the age of 19 years old. I mean, he was preaching at 16 and the churches were so filled, people were standing outside to get in. He was just anointed of God in a phenomenal, phenomenal way. Uh, By the time that he died, he'd started over 2,000 ministries. Have you ever had an opportunity to read everything by Spurgeon? Do. I like him so much, I named my dog after him. But um, I mean that in a good way, not in an insulting way. Okay. And uh, reading him, and I, I read some of the stories about his life are just phenomenal. One of the stories that comes is about this young pastor that comes to him and says, Pastor Spurgeon, how do I have converts like you do? I've been pastoring, I've been preaching, I've been doing all this stuff, but I'm not seeing hearts transformed like you do. He goes, why don't I see hearts transformed? And he goes, let me ask you a question. He said, I do believe that people are going to respond to the gospel every time it's being preached. And he goes, well, of course not. He goes, that's your problem. It's that conviction. You know that God's going to work. God's going to work. And we feel that. That's how we know. That's genuine. When we feel that conviction of the word of God. When I see people going forth and they don't hear it, they're not convicted by the word of God, I'm really nervous about them. Because if you're a child of God, you're going to experience a conviction of God in your life about the truth of God's word. You know, I was reminded the other day, uh, after dinner, I don't know what your custom is, but after dinner at our house, our kids have to do the chores, and they clean up. And then I, I kind of sat on the chair, and I started to flip through my phone and take a few minutes, just kind of disengage. And um, my wife's asking for help for something, and I said, I'd be right there. And then next thing I know, the, the silent. I mean, it's chaos. My, I have four kids. So it's chaos. And um, next thing I know, it's silent. And I look up, and the kids are in the bath. Matter of fact, they're getting out of the bath. My wife is getting them ready for bed. And I'm thinking, how much time was I on my phone? But I try to help, and I can tell my wife is irritated. Um, I, I don't know how men, if you ever notice this with your wife, there's certain expressions. She doesn't have to say anything, 
there's this thing, it's just like, something's not right. And I'm pretty dense, so I don't know exactly, I just know something's not right, but I'm thinking the kids did something stupid. And so I'm going to try to help alleviate this situation by, uh, you know, just doing some stuff for my wife and helping. I can tell something's really bothering her. And I'm, I'm waiting for her to tell me what it is, because I know she will. And the kids are in bed, and everything's fine, and I'm doing dishes. And, and um, she comes over, and I know it's getting ready for bedtime, so I know we need, to, we need to move this discussion along and find out what it is, what's wrong with the kids. And she goes, I'm really frustrated. I'm like, well, what did the kids do? She's like, it's not the kids. <laughs> and it's frustrated with me. And I said, what? And she goes, honey, she goes, uh, I asked you to help me, and you just sat there on your phone. And I said, yeah. And she, I said, I'm, I'm there. And she goes, you're there, but you're not there. You're in the room, but you're not engaged at what is going on. And, he, and, and so I said, you're right. I'm sorry. I'll put my phone aside, and I'll try to be more engaged. See, you know, I think many of us as Christians, we're a little bit like that. We're in the room, but we're not engaged. We're not engaged. And Paul is calling us. He's saying that this church is engaged, and he's calling us to be engaged. And it doesn't mean just being in the room, in the vicinity of things. It means being an active participant in what God is doing. So we need to be engaged in what he has. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying here, he goes, we're giving thanks to God because, because of you, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith. You, you guys are working it. You're doing it. You're rolling. He's, and, and he's saying if you're to be engaged, that's what it's, it, it's faith in action. And what's faith in action look like? And, and we get that time and time again throughout the scriptures. James gives us a great picture of that. In James chapter 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? He says here, Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Or maybe we put it this way in a little popular, uh, let's put it in a modern day thing. Go in peace, I'll pray for you. I hear that? I'll pray for you. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Or James chapter 1, he puts it pretty clearly. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. I mean, Jesus put it pretty frankly. It's not up there. In Matthew chapter 25, he goes, if, he goes uh, you did to the least of me when you, when you saw the prisoner and you went to visit him. When you gave food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty, when you welcomed the stranger, when you clothed those who are naked, it's helping other people. That's faith in action. Sacrificially giving of oneself, willing to be inconvenienced. He's saying, Air, we've heard about your work of faith. But that's not at all. He's saying it's not just requiring us to put our faith into action, but make sure that we have fervent love fervent love here. Now, that's, it's interesting here, the way that this is described in Greek, it's a very powerful terminology that is being uh, used when he says labor of love. The idea literally is like burning out. Work is so hard to the point of being weary, to be tired, to be drained. I think many of us know what that's like. He's saying here, I want you to love God so much that you're willing to put yourself out there to the point where almost burnout is what he's saying. Now, it seems to fly in the face of all the stuff that we see in our world today because we feel burnout all the time. And we do need breaks. I'm not saying that. But he's saying, I want you to be so engaged that you love God so much that you're willing to give everything. It's, it's a labor of love for you. 
And it's, he's saying, I want you to make sure that you have a fervent love that plays itself out in your life, that you keep doing it and doing it till you're tired. He goes on, that's not it. He goes on and says, and steadfastness, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. When I see that term hope, my first reaction is, is to, under, to realize that Jesus is the living hope. Paul's themes in all of his letters, actually almost all of them, you can trace it. There's three themes that he always has. Faith, hope, and love. Almost every single time. And here, you have it exactly here, too. Remember, he, he says here, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, love. It's right there. So it's a theme that Paul carries throughout every one of his letters. But he's saying it's a hope. Hope. Hope inspires. Hope gives, gives energy to us. Politicians dispense hope all the time. The problem is, is when reality doesn't meet expectation. But see, with God, reality always meets expectation. And so there's a hope that we have, and it's, the understanding is a living hope that he beat death, that he came back from the dead, that he lived among us, and after 40 days ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns, and he's ready to come back again. So the hope that we have is a living hope, but it's a hope, steadfastness of hope. The idea is, is being, I can endure trials now because of what my hope and focus is on God. The idea of a focus of the future. See, when you are focused on what God has for us in glory, it get, helps you in, in, uh, to be engaged now. See, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. I'll let that sink in. Christians who did the most were the ones that were living for eternity. They know that this world is not our home. Our focus is on Jesus. It's not about the present world. See, we get too bogged down with the present world. We get too caught up in what's going on around us. We're worried, that, we're worried about terrorism. We're worried about all these different things. And the idea, we, we keep thinking that this world is our home, and it's not our home. This world is one we're passing through. We're strangers and sojourners in this world. This is not our home. We have to stop trying to make it like it is our home. The home that we have is a heavenly home. A heavenly citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul says. Not here. So we need to make sure that we are thinking of the next world, and that it helps us to be engaged in this one when we know that every sin will be accounted for, when we know that wrongs will be made right, and we also know that righteousness will be vindicated. We need to make sure of that. We have that focus on the future. But that's not all. That's not all. I want us to look back at the text, text here. Look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, these are the immediate areas surrounding it, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. I love that. Their, their faith has gone forth anywhere. They don't need to say anything about it. It's gone everywhere. You know, it, it reminds me of uh, something that we had happen here as a church this past uh, few weeks. Uh, we, last week, uh, we had seven families with children gone. Why? Because many people were battling sickness. 
we had kids that were coming out, and we don't know what was going on. We, we made sure that we just totally got rid of every germ that we could think of. We, I mean, we cleaned everything because kids were getting sick. Families were getting sick. We heard people with stomach flu and strep throat. And there was all the sickness going through the church. Why? Because the people were showing up that were contagious, and it was spreading to everybody else, right? You know, that's how we are to be spiritually speaking. That's how the Thessalonians were. They were contagious, infectious, and it was spreading forth to everybody. They couldn't control it. They couldn't keep it in. He's saying the word of the Lord is spread forth everywhere. It's gone to everywhere. Let me ask you a question. Is your faith contagious? Is your faith contagious? Does it just spill out of you? You know, Paul says that. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Jeremiah says the word of the Lord is like a fire in my bones. I can't, I can't keep it in. I mean, is that how it is for you? Do you feel that? Your faith should be contagious. The Thessalonians, they didn't have seminary training. They didn't go to Bible college. And they didn't have access to Moody Radio. Okay, they didn't have any of that stuff. And yet he's saying, your faith has gone forth everywhere. We're hearing reports about it. Paul's like, wow, you guys are amazing. Are you amazing? Is your faith contagious? That's what Paul's saying. Your faith is contagious. It's going forth everywhere. Now let me show you. This is, let me tell you, this is how your faith should be made contagious right now. Okay, Paul says here, I want us to go back to our text. He says in verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. See, we become contagious through the people we follow. The people we follow. Who are you following? We all follow somebody. We all have somebody that we pattern our life after. We look to as an example. You need to follow someone that's on fire for the Lord. You want to be contagious. You need to be around people that are infectious, that are already infected, that are already spreading it. You want to get fired up? Get around somebody who's on fire. And that'll help you to be infectious. That'll help you to be contagious. And Paul's saying, they followed us. Now, some people get freaked out at that, but Paul says, this is a biblical concept. He says, he says to the church of Corinth, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. Copy it. See, we need to do that. And it's not just teaching them. We, we always think of that it's just teaching somebody, but it's also showing them how to do it. That's the part that we lose. We need to teach, we need to equip, we need to provide accountability, send them out and, and make sure they're, they're following the mission of God and sending them appropriately. We're watching the people that we follow. That's how we become contagious. Not only that, but we also do so by persevering through pain. Persevering through pain. Now we see this here. He says in verse 6, again, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. When you're following Jesus and you go through affliction, people will see Jesus in you. The problem is that many of us buckle down the moment that affliction happens and our faith is only convenient when it's easy. I mean, we only follow as it's easy. As soon as affliction hits, we think something's wrong, God's not working, and I need to abandon it. He's saying, no, you receive the word of the Lord in affliction, and people saw Jesus in you and were one accordingly. See, I'm reminded of, uh, I've been reading this book, great book. I would encourage you to read it. It's called Too Many to Jail by a guy named Mark Bradley. It's about the growth of the church in Iran, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, it's the fastest growing church in the entire world. And, and it's growing like wildfire. And it's amazing what happens. Uh, president at the time was Mahmoud uh, Ahmadinejad. And his goal was to eradicate Christianity. He even said it. After he became president, he was going to remove and eradicate Christianity from Iran. So he went about it. I mean, they jailed leaders. They turned, forcibly turned churches into mosques. They would, they would invade small groups. They would put, set up video cameras to see who was going in and out of the church. They even put them in the sanctuaries to see who was worshiping. 
And if it was someone who was a Muslim, they would kill them. That's just how bad it was. And no matter what he did, though, the church kept growing and kept growing and kept growing. Cause, cause, and, and he would take pastors. And I can give you a list of pastor after pastor who was captured, executed, captured, prisoned, executed, captured, hanged, captured, shot. They'd find, and the families are finding their bodies of their pastors all over the place. And you'd think that would take the church out. No, it had the opposite effect. It just kept growing, 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 and growing, and growing. And so when you try to ban it, that's when it explodes. That's what, uh, the, you know, the argument right now, and again, I'm not going to get into the political part of it, but they said that our President Obama has been the biggest, uh, biggest reason that gun sales are, happen- sales are happening. Because the more he tries to stop, more and more people buy. It's the same kind of concept even then. He's saying that they tried to stop it, but it kept growing. And again, I don't want to equate it one-to-one. But I'm saying is, is that the concept is very, very true. When, you see, when people see you willing to suffer for the kingdom of God, people go, I want that because that's real. What would possess a person to go through that? I want what they have. That's real. When you persevere through pain, that makes you contagious. And not only that, but straight up proclaiming his truth. He says right here, for the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. They proclaim the truth of it. Proclaim the truth. We think that it's just by people observing our lives. That's not it. It needs to be both and. It's our lives and our words. And let me tell you, at your workplace, at your school, in your family, there's not always going to be the most convenient time where your family member walks up to you and goes, I'd like to know the four steps of salvation. That happens, by the way. I, I was speaking to a woman at our, our Sugar Grove campus, uh, Marie Friesma. Many of you might know her. She teaches ESL at Moraine Valley Junior College. And she says, almost every, every semester, I have these Muslim students walking up to me going, you're a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And she sits there and she goes, it can't be this easy. I have people stopping in the parking lot, ask me to pray for them. It is that easy. It can't be that easy. It's proclaiming his truth. And she, she says, I let every class know right at the beginning that I'm a Christian. School lets her do it. Proclaim his truth. You'll be surprised if he responds and what God does. Your job is to cast the nets, not to put the fish in it. You cast the net. Let God put the fish in it. So, we come, become contagious through the people we follow, persevering through pain, proclaiming his truth, and lastly, by patiently waiting for his return, because by waiting, we are, we are placing our hope, in ex- and, and it order, helps us order our lives, just as Lewis said earlier. He goes on in verse 10, and, um, in verse 9, excuse me. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You had a massive life change. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That he's coming. He's coming again. And we need to make sure that we are focusing on that and remember that fact. And it helps keep us contagious, just as Lewis mentioned earlier. Now, when I say when he is coming again, this is not what you do. You do not need to get 500 gallons of water to supply you for the next six years in case the economy of the government collapses. Is everyone on the same page with that? Because I'm, I'm hearing of people. I talked with a friend of mine the other day. He doesn't go here. He's a dear friend. And I said, uh, we're talking about firearms and things like that. It came up because of what's in the news. And he mentioned he has a firearm at the ready of every room of his house. I said, what are you expecting? 
Why? But I'm seeing, more, I'm seeing Christians do this more and more. People are hunkering down, thinking they need to remove themselves from the world, and they're having, like, you know, uh, food, dry stuff, things like that, because they're preparing for the apocalypse. That, Jesus did never say to do that. He says, be about the task until he comes again, is what he says. He says, don't bunker down and need to put metal grates on your windows. He says, keep telling people about who Jesus is. Be diligent about the task that God has for you in the here and now. And that's what it means. He says, you're waiting for Jesus to come. He's going to deliver us from the wrath that is coming. But keep your focus on him. You don't need to necessarily be bunkered down in your basement with your AM radio. Okay? You don't need to do that. Keep your focus on him. We need to do. I mean, we need to be focused on him. I'm not saying you don't need to. to, I'm not going to get into the political stuff right now. But. I'm saying is be about the task that God has for us all. That's, what we, that's the point of it. That's what we all need to be about, okay? Because Jesus is going to return. We don't know when. We don't know when. The Scripture never tells us when. And if someone tells you when, don't listen to that person anymore. Because, they really, because the Scripture says no one knows the day or the hour, all right? And especially don't send your donations to them, okay? Because that's happened. Because they predict the day or the hour. You want to make your ministry thrive and get a lot of money? Tell people the end of the world is in two months. And then get out of town. Go buy an island. But that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be faithful to keep teaching people about who Jesus is. Proclaiming the truth. Because you know why? This world is not our home. It's not our home. We've got to quit treating this world like it's our home. Because our citizenship is in heaven in heaven. So we want to be ready to roll? Be ready to roll. You ready to roll? Are you rolling? Are you rolling? I mean, we see what it means. It means being genuine. It means being engaged. It means being contagious. And then watch what God does. Because God is working. He's working in our church. I know he's working in many of your lives. He's drawing many of you to himself that don't yet follow him. There's others that he is calling into active service. Just like he called Tom, he's calling, maybe be calling you to the field. What is he calling you to do? God's asking you to roll in him, to trust in him and see what he will do for you. He will transform you. He will glorify his name in your life and he'll do more than you could ever ask or imagine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything you've done for us and what you're doing in us and even what you're doing through us. Lord, we know it's not because of who we are. It's not because that we uh, have more education or more money or uh, more abilities. Lord, you have chosen forth, chosen us in your matchless grace to use us in spite of ourselves. Lord, we are a broken people, but we are glad that you have called us unto yourself. And Lord, we know that uh, we have been entrusted with so many things, and we are grateful for the example that we have seen with the, the Thessalonians. Though they didn't have much training, though they, didn't, they weren't large by any stretch of the imagination, they weren't so talented, but Lord, they were faithful. They were rolling. They were ready to go with you. They were ready to be obedient. We're being obedient to what it is that you had for them. Lord, may we be the same. May you help us. May you glorify your name in us. May we be faithful about the task that you have for us. Lord, may we tell other people about who you are. May we have an eternal perspective on the whole deal. Lord, we know that you are, you know, your son is coming again, that you're going to bring us unto yourself. And Lord, we do look forward with that and expectation and joy. And Lord, we don't know what will come or when it will come. Lord, we know that there's always wars and rumors of wars that are going on around us. We know that people are being killed for their faith, and we know that it has always been so. 
But Lord, help us to be aware of what we do know, to be about the task that you have for us, to be faithful in teaching people and telling people to be reconciled unto God and to living in such a way that brings you glory. Lord, give us that, give us that ability, give us that power, give us that strength. And Lord, for those that are here who do not yet, have not yet committed themselves to you, Lord, I pray, I pray that you lead them to a joyous surrender, that they might surrender their sin unto you, and they might surrender themselves and receive you as Lord and Savior of their life and receive that forgiveness and peace that comes with it. They might truly put their faith and hope in you because of what you have done on the cross, that you paid the price for their sin, that you died, were buried, and rose again for their justification. And Lord, you ascended into heaven. We know that you are coming again, and we rejoice at that fact, and that you have decided to exhibit your mercy upon us. Lord, glorify your name in our midst, and use this now. In Jesus' name, amen.